following contain situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Feel it in the darkness. We're sailing right into those jagged cliffs. Yeah. Some say we've always been insane. Hey, life's a foolish game. Life's a foolish game. Sometimes we share so much in common with someone, we can't help but be friends. Other times, those commonalities spur a lifetime of rivalry. Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we discuss famous women and the feuds that help define them. This week, friction between couture designers impacts the fashion world for the next 50 years. It's the tale of Coco Chanel and Elsa Schiaparelli. Coco was born Gabrielle Bonheur Chanel in France in 1883. Her childhood was far from idyllic. The child of a street peddler and a laundress, she and her sisters were raised in a charitable poorhouse that employed their mother. When she died, Coco and her sisters were sent to live at an orphanage. The abandonment must have been unbearable. Coco was just 12 years old. At the orphanage, Coco learned to sew, admiring the crisp seams and folds of the nuns' habits and the simple materials comprising them. As her skills evolved, she began making her own clothes out of similar fabrics, honing a concept emphasizing comfort, movement, and practicality. Her experience empowered her, putting her on a daring and ambitious path not traveled by most women of her day. She later told a journalist, I was a child in revolt. Proud people desire only one thing, freedom. But to be free, one must have money. Money, independence, and the power to direct her own life would derive her for decades to come. Following the orphanage, Coco worked as a seamstress by day and at night sung at swanky cabarets like Bichy and Moulin, singing under her moniker nickname. It was there that she met Etienne Balsan, a wealthy man of influence. They soon became lovers and he moved her into his luxury apartment. He showered her with jewelry, but for Coco it wasn't enough. She didn't want to be pampered, she wanted it to be empowered. So she approached Balsan to invest in her dream, a business venture. She asked him to help her launch her own millinery. From there, Coco would put her artistry and skills to work, crafting hats and influencing the fashion of women throughout Paris. At first, Balsan seemed to be agreeable, at least as far as considering the proposal of his charming young lover. He thought it was cute, but not really practical. He could neither show it off at a club nor at a party around her pretty neck. What's more, 
The move might have been seen as risky in his influential society circles. His friends and peers might think him too indulgent, even ridiculous. It would be absurd to humor his little trollop's fantasies of what? Becoming a corporate magnet? So it seems, Wilson played lip service, but it didn't really go any farther. And Coco bided her time until the next opportunity presented itself in the form of Arthur Kappel. Kappel was a friend of Balsan's. Equally rich and privileged, Kappel had one thing that Balsan sorely lacked, listening ears. Party to enough of the conversation to see where things were going, Kappel made his move. He and Coco began an affair which blossomed into what observers would later call the love of her life. Kappel was more than just another guy. He was a friend and her greatest supporter. Do you remember that little millinery she wanted? In 1910, Kappel financed her first boutique without batting an eye. Thanks to his encouragement, financial and public support, Coco was able to thrive at a time that was still oppressively male-dominated. She used her unquestionable talent and his endorsement to open doors that would have otherwise been denied to her. Soon, she was able to launch her own fashion line. And that is what's called trading up. The hat shop was met with great success, giving Coco the attention and credibility she needed to make a name as a legitimate artist. In 1913, she expanded her fashion house to include sports and casual wear as well. And she didn't just sell it, she reinvented it. The fashion of the time was still very demoted. It was the Gilded Age, in a time where women were still bound in corsets, full-length gowns, and parasols, Coco's fashion line was like nothing Paris had ever seen. Drawing upon her experiences as a youth, Coco took those pleats and darts and combined them with the tailored fashion of men's suits to create a fresh new design. Her customers immediately took notice. Her women's line was comfortable and practical, as well as sophisticated and dignified. Finally, women had style options they could actually do something in. With a line of slacks and muted soft-knit tops, Coco quickly became the premier designer in Europe and across the pond. She hit another home run with her signature fragrance line, Chanel No. 5, and followed it up with her revolutionary little black dress, reinventing the way women treated evening wear. Sleek and neutral, simple and elegant, her designs continued to dominate the fashion industry from a market of formal and frivolous to classic and timeless. Who doesn't want to keep their favorite wardrobe piece for more than one season? You could thank Coco for that. Hashtag girl boss. When Kappel died in 1919, Coco would never love again. Instead, she stuck to affairs benefiting her business and her ever-increasing circle of A-list friends, friends like Cocteau, Picasso, and Dolly, to keep her relevant and in the public eye. And she invented an origin story, a mythos that was more in line with her brand, one that better unified her life of luxury, her target audience, and a more palatable upbringing. Leaning into the manufactured world she created herself, Coco began to live in it more and more. Gradually, her personal life disappeared and the myth of the talented, rich socialite overtook her completely. 
leaving one very determined cutthroat chick in its wake. By 1935, Coco commanded a fashion dynasty with 4,000 employees and a command of the global market few could match. Until the Paris fashion scene was invaded once again by a young Italian named Elsa. Elsa Scaparelli was born in Rome in 1890. Her father was a professor, her mother a socialite. Although far from poverty, Elsa suffered another form of neglect and abandonment, parental apathy. Her parents weren't dead. They didn't deject her or refuse to care for her. They were just crappy parents. They considered Elsa a nuisance. Too busy, too self-absorbed, and too involved in their own interests to really care about her at all, Elsa was often left in the care of the help. As a child, she relied on her imagination to escape and told tales of secret adoptions and other inventions to explain away their apathy. Later in life, Elsa would claim she published a book of sensual poetry when she was 14 and that when her parents learned of the scandal, they sent her to a convent. Elsa said in defiance she bravely staged a hunger strike and that her parents were forced to bring her back home out of concern for her safety. But none of this appears to be true. Scholars say the book in question was actually published when she was in her 20s. Another story in her mythos supposedly took place in 1913 when Elsa was invited to a Parisian ball. Having nothing to wear, our girl went to the store and bought four yards of dark blue crepe de jean and two yards of orange silk. In a move that today might border on cultural appropriation, she draped the blue fabric around her body and between her legs, securing it with pins. She divided the orange into a sash and turban, and off she went. If the story is to be believed, I have my doubts about the premise of really having nothing to wear. What would follow might be considered one of history's first wardrobe malfunctions. On the dance floor, the pins began to shift and slide through the slippery material. When the music switched up to a tango, they started dropping out altogether. It was only due to the chivalry of her dance partner that Elsa didn't reveal a little more than her ingenuity that night. He danced her off the floor and out of the room, allowing her to make the necessary repairs in private. When she came of age, Elsa continued to rebel. Refusing to marry any of the rich suitors her parents offered, including a particularly ugly little Russian with beady eyes and manners bordering on stalkerish, Elsa jumped at the chance to work at a British orphanage. According to accounts, she declared, This is going to be forever. There will be no turning back. And when the gig was over, she ensured this was the case by marrying Count Willem de Went de Curler far from her parents' disapproving eye. Curler wasn't like other men, a quality Elsa found irresistible. He was a psychic, a professional medium. Sadly, he wasn't a very good one. He didn't see it coming when England convicted him of practicing fortune-telling and kicked him out of their country. But the couple bounced back, moving to America, and before long, Elsa was pregnant. In another unforeseen move, shortly after giving birth to their daughter, a sickly girl named Isadora, 
Curler left them flat. Nice. In 1922, with few other options, Elsa returned to Europe. Determined to avoid another horrible marriage, or an even worse, I told you so from her parents, Elsa struck out on her own, with only her grit and determination to make it. Well, that and her lineage, place in society, and her Nepo baby status, but we all make do with the cards we're dealt, right? Elsa delved headfirst into the surrealist and Dada movements that were just beginning to take hold. Expressing her creativity in such circles, she took delight in dressing flamboyantly and lively. Taking advantage of her aristocratic background and connections to garner attention, she devised a Trump Loy sweater, knit sweaters with a shirt collar weaved in, and added them to her wardrobe. In 1927, after wearing one at a ritzy luncheon, Lord and Taylor ordered 40. And she was a fashion designer. In the 1920s, artists from all over the world congregated in Paris. The atmosphere was charged with creativity and a synergy that spawned new ways of looking at everything. Conventional wisdom and decorum was thrown out the window replaced by a hedonistic undercurrent. Coco reveled in her role as the uncontested queen of modern fashion. She was the influencer. She had single-handedly been responsible for revolutionizing ladies' dress into the 20th century. Everyone who was anybody was wearing Coco's designs. She was the official designer of the English royal family. She had the full support of her artist friends like Cocteau, Picasso, and Dolly. And yet for Coco, things continued to hang in the balance. Coco based her self-worth on her acceptance as a businesswoman. She later told a reporter, A loveless childhood developed in me a violent need to be loved. This need explains, I think, my whole life. I consider my success as proof of love, and I like to think that when people love what I create, they're loving me as well, loving me through my creations. So when Elsa popped up, it was a problem. The distorted and dreamlike illustrations of Dada and surrealism ran in stark contrast to Coco's tailored jackets and slacks. The public took notice. They called her designs tame and conventional. And Coco wasn't thrilled. As the established brand and clearly the best selling, Chanel had its share of several ventures with negative reviews. It was unavoidable. As her audience and customer base grew, so would her critics. But their opinions still rattled her. For all of her past revolution, Coco felt at home in her conservative designs and conventional image. A dictator of trends, she abhorred fly-by-night fads. Each one of these critiques, however, small and inconsequential, felt like an attack, a rebellion. And the rebels were about to gain a new general. The artistic movement was Elsa's jam and her collared sweaters were just the tip of the iceberg. Elsa's line included off-the-wall accessories, like a hat shaped like a shoe, black gloves with red fingernail tips sticking out of them, jewelry with eyes and ivy, 
people fell in love with the outrageous colors and patterns of Elsa's designs, how her clothing was art and the body a canvas. Even though they weren't practical or suited for everyone's tastes, as a newcomer still enjoying her honeymoon in the spotlight, Elsa was celebrated. And the attention bothered Coco. To Coco, she was a poser, an entitled wannabe who sauntered in and was given a stage. It infuriated her. Coco had to fight for everything, make a name for herself, and claw her way up to the top. What did Elsa do besides show up? She didn't know hunger. She didn't have to work for anything. Coco was a true artist. All Elsa had to do was network with her friends and do some stupid stunts. After drawing these and all sorts of other generalizations, she hated her for it. In the face of Elsa's adoration, Coco bit her lip. She'd have annihilated her if she could, but she knew how the game was played. She couldn't just come out and decry the rival. To do so would be disastrous. At best, her worries would be dismissed. Seen as female hysteria or nothing more than a silly cat fight. But she could also be ridiculed, made to be a public embarrassment. So instead, she kept her head up and her nose in her business. She barely acknowledged the little twit, refusing to even say her name. Elsa noticed and took Coco's disdain personally. She was the toast of Paris, the darling of fashion. How dare that has-been turn her nose up at her? She, a single mom with a sick child to support. It enraged Elsa. Why should she have to wait in some imaginary line or pay dues like a commoner? People in her class didn't wait for what they wanted. So she leaned into her inner diva. She'd show that washed-up lounge singer a thing or two. And with that... It was on. In polite society, it's not a matter of what's said, but often what isn't. The designers' first attacks against one another were for the crown and in the form of carefully crafted quotes to the media. Elsa. For me, dress designing is not a profession, but an art. Coco. I don't do fashion. I am fashion. Then, they attacked each other's authority. Coco. Fashion changes, but style endures. Elsa. There are times to be casual and times to be correct. It's all right to wear a sweater and slacks at a picnic, but they don't belong in the theater or the drawing room. Naturally, their color palettes were also fair game. Elsa. Before me, everything was black, or navy blue, or gray, or brown, or beige, things like that, for daytime. I began using shocking pink, and ice blue, and all kinds of bright colors, and I dyed furs. Coco. Ugh. A pink that sets the teeth on edge. Simplicity is the keynote of all true elegance. their followers were also fair game. Coco, dressed shabbily and they remember the dress. 
dress impeccably, and they remember the woman. Elsa. Remember, 20% of women have inferiority complexes and 70% have illusions. They also developed little hashtag slams of their own. Coco dubbed Elsa that Italian or that Italian artist that makes clothes, making it clear who was the outlier and who was the proper French clothier. In response, Elsa called Coco that hat maker or that dreary little bourgeoisie. And both continued to lock horns, with Elsa gaining all the attention and Coco seething from it. Coco lost her shit when she learned Salvador Dali and Jean Cocteau contributed to that Italian's clothing line. They were her friends! So much for ride or die! Then tennis champ Lily Alvarez wore Elsa's culottes for Wimbledon. When Maison Scaparelli opened its doors, housed in a 98-room mansion, Coco almost threw up. Not that anyone would notice. If anything, they might mistake it for one of Elsa's designs. Elsa gleefully rode her wave of popularity into more starlet's closets, delighting in every scowl Coco shot her way. But why just take her friends, her market, her command? Elsa had already proven she could do anything Coco did better and set out to do more. That little black dress? Elsa made one in response to prohibition that would allow the wearer to hide a flask and came up with her own signature perfume, Shocking. Only where Chanel No. 5 was housed in a boring little rectangular bottle, Elsa enshrined hers in one modeled after Mae West's bust. Her jabs at the heavyweight champion won her more fans and her popularity with celebrities like Marlena Dietrich and Joan Crawford started to soar. She was brash, exciting, and eager to feed the beast. Her fans loved it, and she bathed in the attention. But not everyone was a fan. In 1931, Coco was thrilled to get a call from Hollywood mogul Sam Goldwyn. Fearing his stars had become too vulgar, he wanted to give them a makeover and enlisted the designer's assistance in dressing them more elegantly. At least Americans still had taste. Who would have thought? Coco relished in the idea of leaving Paris behind in order to steal countless clients from Elsa. That would show her. Elsa shrugged it off. She didn't need corporate backing. If it made that little hat maker feel better to steal her table scraps, then so be it. But it didn't turn out that way. Stars like Greta Garbo, Mae West, and others hated the subdued Chanel designs and refused to wear the dresses. They were too boring and lacked the theatrical appeal of Scaparelli's. So they mounted a coup of their own and eventually won out, much to Coco's chagrin. Adding insult to injury, Time Magazine put Elsa on their August 13, 1934 cover. It was the first time a designer had ever been given the honor. Coco popped her cork. How many of their wives had Chanel in their closets, on their vanities? It was an outrage of the most insulting kind. Then, in 1936, she suffered another blow when Wallace Simpson, another so-called faithful follower, appeared for a major photo shoot in a Scaparelli Dali creation. 
betrayal was worse than Coco could have possibly imagined. Not only was the purpose of the shoot to announce her engagement to the newly abdicated King of England, a subject sure to be circulated in perpetuity, but the gown, the lobster dress, it was revolting. Coco didn't know what was worse, that her friend and loyal customer would wear a design that wasn't hers or that she would rather wear that dress. It was enough to push any woman into legitimate hysterics. So, when she received an invitation to one of Europe's last costume balls before the outbreak of World War II, Coco gladly accepted. She didn't even mind when she learned Elsa would be there as well. Perhaps her friends even breathed a sigh of relief at the serene smile that spread across Coco's face as she, dressed as herself, spotted Elsa across the room. They may have even exchanged glances when Coco walked up to the former bane of her existence, dressed up as a gaudy little tree, and said something about bygones being bygones. It would have been the perfect time to armchair quarterback and say something about how they had always known Coco couldn't keep the feud going forever or some other platitude, especially when Coco asked Elsa to dance. Of course, one would assure those listening that it was no surprise that Elsa would accept, a sign of good breeding and all. But as the women clasped hands and entered the dance floor, it was Coco who took the lead. She sashayed and spun her partner pleasantly around before steering her into a chandelier lit with candles. Elsa's costume ignited at once. Coco literally set Elsa on fire. Of course, Coco claimed it was an accident, a mild little whoopsie. After all, it wasn't like anyone was hurt. Before too much damage could be caused, guests quickly doused Elsa in soda water, extinguishing the flames. But Elsa definitely felt the burn. The incident remained on the tongues of Europe's who's who well into the war. The beginning of World War II eventually shut down both shops and the conflict harbored by the headliners. Elsa left for New York and mostly stayed out of the limelight. She kept her design house open as long as she could for the sake of her employees before being forced to close. Coco kept her perfume store going, but had to make other decisions in order to keep her company afloat. She also became a Nazi spy. We'll talk about that another time. Following the war, the climate changed. Public taste shifted again to something more patriotic, more practical, and more male-dominated. A new player emerged as the IT designer of ladies' fashion, Christian Dior. Both design houses fell out in favor of his new look. On a positive note, it finally appears our girls had someone to despise besides themselves. To the press, Coco said, Dior doesn't dress women, he upholsters them. And Elsa emphatically agreed. Elsa tried to reignite her brand without success. In spite of her best efforts, it shut down in 1954. Coco stepped up and released a new fashion collection, one in black and white. Initially, Europe yawned, but Americans couldn't get enough. That energy eventually made Paris walk it back and put her back on top. In your face, Dior! Coco died of a heart attack in 1971 while in seclusion at the Ritz. She is rumored to have said her final words to her maid. See, this is how you die.
she was 88 years old. At the age of 83, Elsa had a stroke, which put her in a coma for several weeks. She died in Paris in 1973. The Scaparelli brand was revived in September of 2013 with Italian designer Marco Zanini in charge. Drawing much of their inspiration from Elsa's original designs, the house continues to use surrealist influences with a modern twist. Bella Hadid recently wore a Scaparelli hot couture at the fall-winter 2021 Cannes Film Festival. Chanel continues to sell clothing, perfume, and dodge the Nazi affiliations of their founder. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crap. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble Media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.